Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass Podcast. I am your host, Jensen Bueller of Asphalt and Rubber, and we've got a bit of an interesting show this week because, obviously, there has been no racing going on. Races left and right are falling by the wayside as the quarantines and stay-at-home orders uh, continue on. We have David, Neil, Steve, and myself to do a little bit of a different show, talking about kind of how the Paddock Pass podcast came to be, who we are, and what it's like to to cover motorcycle racing in the Grand Prix products and World Superbike and, and so on and so forth. So without further ado, Mr. David Evan of Moto Matters, Mr. Steve English of World Superbike fame, and Mr. Neil Morrison, man about town. Boys, thank you for joining me for, for this show today. Hello. Hi, Jensen. Hi, JB. It seems that Neil clearly got the best introduction of all of us there. You know, I kind of ran out of steam on that one. I didn't quite know how to give a proper introduction to Neil because he's just, his largesse just just fills the screen. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, but also technically he lives in a city, so he's a man about city, surely. Yeah, and when you say that there's a largesse on the screen, can I just say that I've been in lockdown for close to four weeks now, so I haven't been able to go and see a barber for quite a while. <laughs> I want to know what Dave's excuse is on that, though, because his hair hasn't grown nearly as much as yours. Uh, yeah, but that's uh, uh, it's um, it's this thing called being really, really lazy. I mean, I could uh, get the clippers out, but that would involve me getting the clippers out. I like the way that Dave thinks that his lack of hair growth is down to laziness as well. This is impressive. <laughs> I, I'm not doing my best. I could be rubbing the old uh, rubbing the old caffeine uh, nonsense into it. That and age, of course. Just out of curiosity, Dave, what would be a bigger waste of caffeine? Would it be rubbing it in your head to make your hair grow, or would it be putting milk into your coffee? Putting milk into it, because at least uh, you know it would serve a purpose if I was rubbing it into my head. Dave, I think you were the first person in the group that I met, so I'm going to throw it to you to, to tell your story first. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I got into... Um, although I think you and me started more or less at the same uh, time, JB. I mean, I was always sort of a bike racing fan. I grew up uh, watching bike racing. Uh, my uncle was a grass track champion in the 1970s, and he uh, prepared a few bikes to go racing. He actually uh, prepared Keith Hewen's TZ350 um, uh, back in the 19 uh, in the late 1970s. So I was always sort of around uh, bike racing. I started getting into it again really, really seriously around the turn of the century, a little bit before. In 2006, I started writing about it. Uh, mainly because I started a blog and wanted to uh, write about all sorts of things, you know, politics and all sorts of other things, but um, I didn't write about anything for a year. And so the 2006 season uh, was about to start, and so I wrote a season preview, and 2006 turned out to be a really good um, a really good year to start writing about motorcycle racing. Then I quit my job in 2008 as the site started to grow, thinking I can make it professionally. I uh, handed my notice in in September 2008, and then um, uh, the, the economy crashed in October 2008. So, you know, there was that. Um, but I'm still here, so I, I've managed to survive somehow. Um, and I've been sort of a, a full-time in the paddock since I think 2009 was my first year um, that I started uh, going to MotoGP and I've been been there ever since. And then I think uh, the reason the Paddock Pass podcast exists is because Steve came up and introduced himself to me and started 
um, forcing me to talk to people and brought the group together, really. Dave, you you started originally writing stories for a web form, didn't you? Before before there was a, a Moto Matters, there was a Moto GP Matters, but before that, I think it was ADV Writer, or, or correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I was just posting on a forum. I mean, I was on the, um, uh, I was just posting on the ADV Writer forum, uh, but uh, like I said, I also had my own blog, and I was doing it sort of like at the same time. So I start, they started simultaneously. Uh, if you like, I posted it on the blog and then posted it on um, on ADV Rider, and it all sort of took off from there accidentally. You started at a really interesting time because it was right in that transition point between moving or the industry moving from print journalism to online journalism becoming a thing. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about that process and and kind of the challenges you had to face, you know, in that point in time because because those were rough years. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, to an extent, I don't have quite so much insight into print journalism because I never really worked in print journalism. Um, I never had a print, um, uh, I mean, I've occasionally written for print publications, but it's always been very, very secondary. Um, but when I got into, uh, MotoGP and got into the paddock, then it was very much a question of, uh, people not being, um, I mean, Dorna were not very welcoming to websites at the time. They were very, very uh, difficult about it. It's still not sort of as easy as um, if you're actually working for a magazine. Um, but uh, they were, you know, nobody really knew what to make of me. Uh, nobody really knew to uh, knew what to make of the um, uh, of the internet, really. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, I started in 2009 and 2009 was also when Twitter started and that, um, so I was sort of doing two different revolutions there. First of all, there was the, um, the, the, the change to sort of web publishing and, um, uh, writing about what's happening on the, uh, on the web. But then also there was, you know, Twitter basically meant that, while all of the web journalists or all of the print journalists were desperately trying to hang on to their scoops for the Wednesday print edition of their publications, um, Twitter meant that news was out within, literally within seconds of it happening. You know, quotes would be out on Twitter within uh, within a few seconds of it happening. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's seen the change. And certainly in my time, I've seen a huge decline in, the number of print journalists actually coming to racing, but that's just, you know, along with the general decline of print publications, unfortunately. Neil, how about yourself? How did you get started in, the, in this racket? Because I don't think I actually know your story. Um, well, I mean, it's uh, it's not really um, a conventional one, to be honest. Um, I always enjoyed uh, writing when I was younger. Um, I was always into reading um, sports reports and um, was a big football fan, massive uh, motorsport fan when I was younger. Um, grew up in Northern Ireland. My parents are mad motorbike fans and I would go to the TT every year and races around Northern Ireland, usually road races. Um, occasionally go over to England to watch some of the British Superbike events um, and was just uh, always fascinated by the competition, the riders, the history of the sport as well. Um, and uh, yeah, kind of once I finished studying, I um, spent around four or five years uh, teaching English um, in several locations uh, around the world, really. Um, I spent some time in um, Southeast Asia. Um, I spent some time in South America, um, as well as Spain. 
um, where I'm based now. And uh, when I was in South America, um, I kind of sort of figured like, hey, I don't think I want to be doing this teaching thing for the rest of my life. So I better start uh, trying to branch out and, and writing some things. And uh, I started working for a, uh, it was like a cultural publication that um, covered um, cultural events, um, uh, film premieres and art exhibitions, things like that. Um, you'd be like going to the event and, and dealing with Spanish artists or Spanish or in that case, it was in uh, it was in Chile, uh, so Chilean people. Um, but you would be writing about it in English. Uh, so I started doing that, and I thought like, yeah, this is quite fun, you know, doing interviews and things like that. Um, but I didn't really have a background in in art or cinema, so I thought it, this would be a lot easier if I actually knew what I was writing about. Um, so that was at the end of 2012. Um, it was just around the time that Casey Stoner was uh, retiring from MotoGP, and I started. Um, I think I started, the first article I wrote was about uh, Casey Stoner and some of his best uh, victories. And I remember sending that in to uh, Peter McLaren, one of our, our good esteemed colleagues at Crash.net. And uh, yeah, he was quite open to me contributing then to, to Crash in the future. So um, for the next two years, I continued uh, teaching. I moved from South America to, to Europe, um, back to Spain. And uh, yeah, I basically... Uh, did some teaching and then on the side um, tried to write as much as possible about motorbikes um, uh, while going to a couple of events and uh, I think I went to my first event as a journalist in 2013 it was the Aragon round of world superbikes um, didn't know what I was doing at all yep yeah, so I was kind of basically doing little bits and pieces 2013 2014 and um, it wasn't really getting me anywhere and then I guess I just sort of had a few lucky breaks at the end of 2014. Some people um, split or parted ways um, and some extra work became available. And uh, I started working in part for um, Road Racing World, John Ulrich's um, publication in America that's been going on for, for a long, long time. And that, basically that job gave me a way into the MotoGP paddock. Um, so then 2015 was my, was my first year and uh, just so happened to be one of the best years in, in MotoGP history, um, as well as the, uh, well, Danny Kent's um, triumph as well. And uh, the fact that I think it was basically Steve and I were going down to Danny Kent's, uh, and David sometimes as well, going down to Danny Kent's garage every day. He ended up getting a bit of a good rapport. And I think uh, a couple of end of season features on Danny opened the door to several other publications. Um, and I've just about been able to keep my foot in the door ever since then. One of the things I think that's, that's interesting for, for all four of us is none of us started with the idea of, of going into journalism or studied journalism in, in school or anything like that. So, you know, you know, describe for me kind of like the challenges of, of learning the trade as, as you're going, especially coming, you know, as a school teacher. Yeah, I guess, uh, first of all, I was learning how to, to write well um, and to become comfortable at it. Um, so I feel that that took a, quite a few years and it's still something that... I, um, you, you kind of struggle with from time to time. Um, but um, it was also, I feel, just uh, just being confident and um, basically knowing absolutely everything about the subject matter that you're covering. I mean, these aren't obviously, um, uh, you know, these are, these are pretty obvious things. But, um, yeah, I think uh, that, was, that was quite interesting. And then there was also just the, um, just the kind of, period where I wasn't really making any money doing this. Um, I'm sure Dave and Steve also 
possibly you as well, Jensen had this at the start of your career. But yeah, the, I mean, I was I was basically making no money doing this for about two years. Um, certainly nowhere near enough to even cover you know costs uh, during a race weekend. Um, so I was having to supplement that with uh, other other work. Um, so yeah, looking back, I mean, those were those were a couple of tough years. I remember even the first half of 2015, I was still teaching, um, and that was uh, that was a bit of a drag coming home on a, a Sunday night or a a Monday morning, completely knackered after a pretty hectic weekend, and then going straight into going straight into class. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that was uh, that was tough. But you know, it was it was a hard grind, and I think it's just um, part and parcel of this of this industry. I mean, you, it's very rare that you just uh, you walk into a position where you're automatically getting paid good money and all your expenses are covered. It just doesn't really work like that anymore. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think you have to be prepared to, to hustle, uh, to grind certainly for, for quite a bit. And, um, yeah, maybe that took me a bit, uh, by surprise whenever I first got into this. Yeah. I mean, for me, I started, uh, I was a translator for, I can't remember about five years now. Uh, and so you were doing a lot of, uh, we were doing a lot of that, uh, you know, that, that was where I learned certainly to write. And uh, like Neil said, like so much of it is about confidence. So you're writing about something that you love and know about, and that gives you the confidence to uh, to write. But it's also um, certainly in terms of, sort of journalism and stuff. I uh, always wanted to cite sources because I was never confident enough to say this is what has happened, sort of on my own uh, uh, on my own back. So it, it, I think that has always made me much more careful about writing stories because I never wanted to, um, you know, blow something, uh, uh, I never really had the confidence to sort of like blow something up into into pointless controversy sort of thing. Steve, you've probably um, had the most time in a, in a proper uh, journalistic structure. Talk to me about your story going from, you know, non-industry work and then coming into, you know, the motorcycle journalism realm and working for MCN and, and then where you are now. Yeah, for me, it was something that took a long time because I went to college, studied software engineering and halfway through college, got really sick. And then it was basically I couldn't leave the house for three or four years, went back, finished off college. And during that time, whenever you're basically just forced to sit on the couch for you know 16 17 hours a day you start thinking about what you'd like to do and obviously my training was always going to take me down a computing route so uh, you know going software engineering it ended up where I went into telecoms but at that stage it was just as similar enough to David you know he went through the economic crash in 08 and 09 that's when I finished college so you went 18 months where you couldn't really get any work so in that 18 months I started writing on a couple of different forums, mostly about Formula One, a little bit about MotoGP. And I sort of thought Formula One would be the path I'd take because that was always the racing series where I watched the most, where I understood the most, where basically where I, I that was that was the one that sort of drew me initially into a bit of journalism. I and I started writing for a local paper, basically just writing a three hundred word column about Formula One. The goal was basically for the editor not to have to write that column. So he could just sort of leave 300 words free. He was happy enough with that. So for two years, I wrote a column for him. And uh, then once I got my foot in the door working for Ericsson as a telecoms engineer, it was basically my first paycheck. I went straight away to Catalonia for the Formula One race. And uh, 
was working in the paddock for that weekend, thought, that's pretty cool. Oh, well, I'll go back and I'll just keep being an engineer. Then a couple of months later, there was the British Grand Prix at Silverstone for MotoGP. I went to that. I was working at that as well. And you think, like, oh, yeah, this is actually, this is worth, you know, spending a couple of paychecks a year going to races. It's good fun. You get into the paddock, you get trackside. And then it sort of just snowballed from that for me. I started writing more and more. And uh, basically from internet forums, ended up thinking, oh, well, you know, people seem to like this. So I'll start seeing if I can get work with anyone. And in 2012, I actually contacted David and uh, I was politely rejected for uh, giving work to Moto Matters. and Because uh, I didn't for, have any money. Well, <laughs> you know, I was writing for free at that stage, Dave. But uh, I remember I emailed David, it was after the, the Qatar Grand Prix in 2012. And, you know, we just started a little bit of back and forth. And Dave was giving me a bit of advice about what you can do, what you should probably focus on. And uh, basically just trying to steer me into a path of doing analysis from at home you know where you can look at timing sheets you can listen to what's said in the interviews and different things like that and and work your way through it and then when I went to a Grand Prix in 2012 we ended up talking a lot more and uh, ended up as David said basically working together a little bit in the paddock one of us going to a debrief the other one giving notes and different things like that and uh, from one race it ended up being I went to, I think, 10 races in 2012. And then 2013 is really whenever I started to have a couple of opportunities again. Like Neil, it actually came through Crash.net. I was working with Pete. And throughout that 2013 season, Pete ended up coming to races from Catalonia onwards. But the whole way through that year, the two of us were basically covering everything in the MotoGP class. We'd talk to pretty much every rider every day. And you'd write up a report from that and you were just flat out. So for those two years working with Pete, it really was a case of just uh, when you turned up on a Thursday or Friday, you just worked all the way through that. And then you'd fly home and you go to work the next day on the Monday and you just keep doing that the whole way through the year. So it really was a case of being flat out throughout the course of the year. And a bit like for Neil as well, you don't make any money, you don't save any money, but you're just working towards a goal. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember that period and just being astounded at the amount of work that you were doing at the time, Steve. I mean, um, you really were st- sort of working, you know, basically like a full work week uh, and then uh, a full work weekend. And uh, it, it, the work weekends are punishing enough as they are, but to, to actually do it uh, uh, flying around the world and teaching uh, all the stuff that you were um for Ericsson, that was uh, that I was always incredibly impressed and thought you were slightly insane. Uh, I probably was a bit insane, but that was what you had to do because at that stage, as David said, I was teaching courses. I was basically teaching different customers how to use products, and you'd be working. And I think in my time in Ericsson, I went to over a hundred countries, and you were literally from one end of the year to the next. You'd be away for ten months of the year, and you'd try and just fix up where a race was quite close to where you were traveling to and then you'd be able to go from one to the other and just work your way through it and a bit like what Dave said there as well in 2014 I started talking to Matt Burt quite a bit and uh, whenever Matt found out that I was working full-time suddenly he was quite keen then to help me out and himself and Matt Oxley tried to get me some work and that was actually for the 2015 season to do the stuff that Neil ended up doing with Road Racing World and uh, trying to get whatever work I could at that stage. Obviously, for 2015, I ended up getting the MCN job and it worked out quite well that I was able to leave Ericsson 
go straight into the MotoGP season and then I've been lucky enough since then to be able to be full-time. But I remember at that stage, I was ready to ready to quit and I was sort of thinking, you know, you need to focus on one or the other. I was 30 and I was thinking, you know, you can't keep spending all your money just hoping that you're going to get an opportunity to work full-time in racing. So I was ready in, in 2015 just to pull the plug on that and focus on just going to a couple of races where you enjoy going. It could be Australia, it could be, you know, Mijalo, those kind of races that are good fun to be at and they only do two or three a year. Steve, listening to you talk, it's interesting to me to hear kind of how all of us have this story of having to fake it until we make it, so to speak, uh, not really making any money, having to grow like um, kind of our own legitimacy as as journalists come, you know, coming from outside of that realm. But also we all got our start, you know, right around that that recession in 2008, 2009 as, as kind of the turning point of when we were doing this um, in, in earnest, you know, do you see now being a similar inflection point for, for people if they were going to, to try and do something similar is, is our current situation analogous to that, to that point in time in 2008 where there's opportunities to, to make lemonade out of lemons? Yeah. I think if you're at this stage, it does give you an opportunity. Most people are, stuck at home you're in lockdown pretty much across the world as neil said he's been in lockdown for four weeks so at this stage you do get the chance to take stock of what you want and take stock of what you think you can do so for a lot of people this could be the opportunity for them to try and branch out and try something different and you know it does open up that door but it is a case of you need to push it open and you need to keep persevering with it i think for all of us that was the case we all got to a stage where you think okay, is it worth making the jump now? For me, it was that winter of 2014 into 2015. Luckily enough, I got a full-time job and was able to go to MCN. For David, it was whenever he was coming into the 2009 season. For Neil, it was whenever he could look at it and say, I don't have to teach English anymore. And for you, Jensen, it was when you looked at it and said, I want to be able to go back to America. I want to be able to try something different. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think there is a big difference between um, now, 2020, and 2008-9. 2009, we we saw a really long and deep uh, recession. And this looks like being sort of a very short, sharp shock. Um, so it took, uh, I think, a lot more, a bit more stamina, uh, stamina in two thousand and nine. But I think what we'll what we'll see now is a lot of people um, who were in the in the paddock, who were already sort of on a bit of a knife edge in terms of earnings, because uh, it it remains quite a precarious um, situation. It's precarious uh, income. You make you make just. Uh, there's a lot of people just getting by and making just enough money. And um, uh, I think we'll see a fair few people sort of knocked off uh, who just can't afford to to do it anymore, and who will go off and do something else. And that will certain it will certainly open up opportunities. But like uh, I think the lesson of all of us, because I know you, uh, JB, you're the same. You've you know worked your ass off to get where you are. I think we all worked really really hard um, just to sort of stand still and just to uh yeah just just to get where we are now but it's it, it's not you know you're not going to walk into the paddock uh, when we start racing again uh and uh, turn into a superstar reporter no i think that's the the take home message um you know if there's a if there's a psa element to this it's that uh 
it's not an overnight thing and it's and it's not terribly easy there's there's definitely easier ways to make more money um you know in this in this world but i think you i think you hit it a little bit on the head like it's it, it is more of a shock now than it was in in 2008 um i know from my own personal story you know i came basically out of school into the into the recession thinking that i was going to work in uh, investing in some sort, um, corporate development or, or venture capital. And those are two industries that, that didn't exist anymore. Uh, there was just no institutional money at that point in time. And, and long story short, fell into to creating asphalt and rubber. And I think there's a lot of value in, in having to start a company in that point in time because it forced, at least for me, it, it forced me to make a company that was Based around being really lean and not having a lot of overhead, and and you know, frankly, looking for for people to to partner with and getting creative because no one had any money. Um, so it wasn't like oh, like hey, I can I have this huge budget so I can hire all these writers. You had to be more creative in how you were going to collaborate and 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 get things done. And it makes you a little bit more scrappy. And I think it's I don't know if it'll be the same for for us now, but I do think you're right, David. I think it's this. Uh, pandemic is going to create some some shock to the system and it's going to create some opportunities and the the crafty people will see the 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 market for what it is and and, and slot themselves in accordingly as you just spoke a little bit jensen about uh, starting up asphalt and rubber i'd like to know uh why you decided to do that because i don't think i'm actually <laughs> too aware of of your story and how asphalt and rubber came into came into existence why is a good question, Neil? I think my mother asks me the same question. Um, so I, I, uh, I have a I have a law degree and in a, in a in a business degree, an MBA, and um, two undergraduate degrees. So I'm, I'm fairly overeducated and, and underemployed by by most standards. Um, so I was finishing uh, prosecuting war criminals for the United Nations uh, from the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda genocides. I uh, had a short contract with the UN and then went back to school to get my my MBA. And that finished up in 2009. And during the course of that school year, uh, late 2008, is when I started Asphalt and Rubber because it was very clear what the writing on the wall was going to be in terms of employment. Um, in fact, my graduating class, I think uh, only 40% were employed at graduation, which is fairly unheard of for, for American business schools. And all of those job offers came the year before, um, and, and were were you know extended to them during their summer internships. There was no work to be found in that final year, and I went in there with this this like I said this idea of being in, in some sort of investing, and it, and it didn't materialize. And I went on a couple job interviews, and it was quite frankly a disaster. Um, and I got really excellent advice from someone saying like you know maybe a large corporation isn't for you. You know, try and figure out what your passions are. Work from there. And I was like, you know what? I really like motorcycles. Uh, I really, I really caught the bug while I was in university, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew uh, over time. And I started thinking about trying to find a job in the motorcycle industry. Well, I didn't know anyone in the motorcycle industry, so I was like, well, I'll uh, I'll start this blog, and that'll be something good that'll show up when they Google my name when I'm you know applying for some sort of position. You know, I was just literally thinking of it like from an SEO perspective. 
and um, you know, write some stories that are interesting, and hopefully they I sound intelligent, and they'll want to give me an interview and hire me, and I'll be able to uh, pay off my student loans. And um, I also found it was a lot easier <laughs> to get an interview with someone if you say it's for a story than if you say it's for a job. <laughs> um, so that that kind of had like a, an added benefit. But um, yeah, I came out of school. Uh, I moved back to California. I moved into my mom's basement, and I was, you know, one of three thousand people applying for one job at Google or one job at Facebook or, you know, any of these, you know, companies that were were barely hiring at the time. And I just kept writing and I kept writing. And about a year later, I realized about I had about a hundred thousand readers, and I was like, huh, that's weird. Um, so maybe I'll give this a go. You know, this isn't, it's providing me a little money. It's not enough to live off of, but maybe if I did it full time, maybe if I put my energies into it, it could be something that could turn into something. And, and it was right at that crux of, of print going to digital. And I would say the American print publications had left the door pretty wide open for, for someone like me to come along. And Facebook was very new. I don't even think we had Facebook business pages yet. I think it was still uh, just like, regular Facebook. I don't know how to describe that. But Twitter was very new. Social media in general is very new. And so there's a lot of opportunities to take advantage of these new platforms. And and there was obviously audiences there that were hungry for motorcycle content. And truthfully, I feel like I just I just got lucky. Uh, I just kind of fell into it. And I think, you know, um, the timing aspect to all of this is 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 a key component because that was really a crack in time for for people like us to get our starts. Uh, and then, you know, as they say, the rest is history. And then uh, I think I got my first gig in the MotoGP paddock through David, and that was 2010, maybe? It was Laguna Seca. And, um, yeah, that's kind of how I wormed my way in, into there. And I wouldn't say I'm a paddock regular, but I show up from time to time, and people seem to remember who I am, so that's that's always good to see. Um, and then obviously, you know, it kind of went from there and, uh, shoot, I'm trying to think how long we've been doing this podcast now, but it's been a little bit of a while and, uh, 2015. You know, it's, it, it, 2015. Yeah. So coming up on five years now and, um, it's another, it's a new platform. It's a new medium. I think we were one of the, uh, not the first, but, you know, kind of on the early adopter side of it. And now it's interesting to see where we are in time now and seeing how many other, you know, professional uh, access, professional level podcasts and, and Grand Prix racing have shown up and people are kind of seeing this as as the next step or, or as a, a necessary element into their media package. And that's really, you know, kind of great and fascinating for me as being more of the behind the scenes guy in, in the Paddock Pass podcast crew. Yeah, it's also interesting that a lot of uh, sort of new podcasts have started um uh almost as a result of necessity um whereas before there was only one or two sort of racing um uh, racing podcasts but now uh yeah people are stuck at home and they need to do something and so everyone's starting a podcast it seems like i think it's podcasting is one of the perfect mediums in the sense that if you you know there's there's a there's a sense of wanting to do video but as we all know in the MotoGP paddock Video is very heavily restricted by Dorna. Uh, that's where they make their bread and butter is for the TV rights. So they're obviously very protective of, of that. And that kind of leaves audio in this, in this 
area where it kind of makes it a lower hanging fruit. And I think that's that's part of the push, but also like just from like a production side of it. You know, this is this is kind of my bread and butter. It's so much easier to produce a podcast than it is to do a video show. And and it is kind of the the easier barrier to entry. And yeah, you can you can do it while sitting on your couch at home waiting for the coronavirus to to you know work itself out. You can do it, you know, in your hotel room. You can do it, you know, while you're traveling. You don't have to lug around, you know, big heavy cameras and expensive equipment. It's it's a pretty lightweight way of telling stories. And and as we've seen, you know, with the growth of podcasts, there's there's a market for for people that can't be necessarily engaged in front of a screen, but they have the ability to to listen to the the show in their car or while they're at work or on a plane or whatever it is, and uh, you know it fills a nice little niche. And it's it's kind of going back to like more traditional long form long form journalism where you're telling a story rather than just here's 30 seconds you know, of news while I try and fight for your attention while you're watching TV, looking at your phone, and surfing the web on your laptop. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's interesting from that perspective. Yeah, because for me, one of the things that's interesting about the podcast is when you listen to any podcast, what are you doing? You're out for a walk, you're in the gym, you're doing different things where you want a bit of a distraction. You don't generally sit down and just listen to a podcast. You usually do it when you're doing something else. It could be when you're driving to work or different things like that. And that's where it's important to be able to have something that, as you said, Jay, is an audio medium as opposed to reading or watching. So that's where the you know, podcast had their opportunities. And I remember when we started, it actually it came from your idea, Jensen. We were all sp- uh, staying in a house together in Austin for uh, the Grand Prix in Coda. And uh, you were saying, oh, this would be great if we could do this as a podcast because you were getting information that you wouldn't have had otherwise because that was the only race that you go to each year. Uh, was it, um, was Jareth, I'm just trying to think, was, was uh, Jareth the first podcast that we did? Because that, yeah. uh, that would have us coming up on five years. We should um, we should bake a cake. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't expect you to finish that sentence with "we should bake a cake," but uh, <laughs> just give me a second. Um, it, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'll share a secret with you guys. Like, you know, I, I'm dyslexic, so for me, writing stories uh, in type is it, it was very difficult. I very much had to learn how to write, like kind of how Neil said. Like that was one of the biggest challenges. I wasn't a strong writer in school. I was better with oral debate, which is how I ended up. At the at the UN, to be honest, I, I impressed a, a law school professor with uh, with an oral argument in class, and and it kind of fell in place for me for there. So I actually really enjoy podcasting as a format because it actually helps me get back to um, you know a, a form of communication that I think is not only more effective in in kind of expressing your ideas because you get the the inflection of the of the speaker, which is you know I think a lot of the times lost when you're when you're writing, but um, it allows you to to tell a story in a very different way that I think is more personal and, and for me makes a lot more sense. And I wonder if it's if it's the same for 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 you guys or if it's a different skill set altogether. Yeah, well I think for, for me I'm a bit like you as well, Jay. I'm a terrible writer. You've had to edit me enough and David's oh, had to edit me Christ, enough. Your writing's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so for me a podcast is much better because you're able just to tell stories, you're able to tell what you've heard. You don't have to work to you know a specific word count, so that helps David as well. And uh, I think that you know, there's a lot of positives that you can have from a pod because you're able to you know, you're able to to play off each other and things like that and 
I know for all of us, it's always good fun to be able to to work together. And even when we were all working for different media outlets, we were still working together. As Neil said, me and him were going down to talk to Danny Kent every day. And that was fine because you'd use some of Neil's questions, he'd use some of mine, and you'd be able to have you know, a better story or a better piece out of it. And that's the big thing. It's being able to work with people. And it's a lot easier whenever you're working with a group rather than just on your own because you're able to split time an awful lot easier. You're able to send some people to one thing, you to another, and you're all able to, to work well together. And I think that's the key that sort of brought the podcast together. Yeah, I think also that's been... Um one of the big changes with perhaps print journalism, also just because the championship is a lot more interesting, a lot more uh, exciting now. There are money, there are much more stories. I mean, I remember in 2009, 2010, suddenly really five or six people you need to go to speak to every every week, and you could do that on your uh, on your own. Uh, but now there is so much sort of depth and richness throughout the championship. I mean. Uh, there are there are twelve factory riders, um, and there's uh, uh, apart from there being twelve factory riders, there's I don't know, what seven, eight, nine. Uh, well, no, should we say five or six other uh, other riders who are really really interesting and you really want to speak to, uh, and then there's Moto Two and Moto Three, which are much more um, intriguing and interesting championships. So it's, it's simply just not possible to to do the whole thing on your own anymore. You really need other people to uh, you know you need people to share stuff. You need you also need to be there's so much more going on. You need sort of people to bounce ideas off. Yeah, and that's something that I noticed uh, when I came into. The MotoGP paddock because uh, my sort of brief experiences in World Superbike in 2013 and 14, um, I mean, I was completely new, so obviously I didn't know anyone. Um, and the fact that I wasn't going to races regularly, I think I went to three in 2013 and maybe two in 2014. Um, I remember Harath in 2014, Neil. Yeah, I think that's when I first, well, we first worked together, Steve. Um, but because you weren't, I didn't have that regularity you weren't able to sort of build up those relationships, that trust with other journalists, with press officers, with team personnel, with riders. Um, and, you know, when you're working away from home uh, alone for a full weekend, traveling to and from events, I mean, it is quite lonely. Um, so I was uh, a little bit apprehensive about starting in, in MotoGP in 2015, but I was obviously very fortunate because I had met Steve the year before. Um, we had struck up a bit of a relationship, and then through Steve, I was able to meet you, David, uh, I was able to meet you as well, Jensen, that year in 2015 at India, I remember. And um, and obviously uh, Pete McLaren, a good friend and colleague, was on the scene. Adam Wheeler as well. And um, yeah, I've kind of found that MotoGP, although it makes me cringe sometimes when people refer to it as a, a big family that's traveling around. I mean, I do find that... Um, uh, it's quite an open place, um, and when you speak to journalists, media members from different nationalities, uh, people are quite open... If they trust you, I think that they're quite open with with some information, um, and I don't believe it's like that. From what I've what I hear, it certainly isn't like that in other paddocks, and certainly isn't like that in other sports. Uh, I, I would say that it is uh, quite like a family in that uh, there's always a, a certain number of members uh, of your family who you absolutely hate and would try to avoid at all costs, and there's other members of your family who you really like and like spending times with. So it's it's it is like that. But like you say, it, it really is about trust, and I think it, it has changed a lot i mean i was lucky because i met dennis noyes um uh, very early on in my career i think actually at the very first race that i went to and um and he sort of took me in 
and uh, sort of uh, talked to me and, um, uh, and he was a huge help at the start and having someone like that having sort of a, a mentor that makes a that makes a huge difference then when he went when he went off to uh, commentate on world superbikes for um, a Spanish TV uh, I didn't see him as often but I would still um, you know still kept kept in contact and I'd already sort of managed to establish myself yeah, it's interesting what Neil says there as well, because I've worked in pretty much every racing paddock at one time or another. And the reason why I ended up in MotoGP and then World Superbikes was because there weren't an awful lot of people in bikes. You know, you go to a Formula One paddock and there's hundreds of journalists and they're all trying to make a name for themselves. They're all trying to make a splash. And most of them are English speaking. So it's really difficult to come in and uh, make much of an impact you know there's been a few people that have done it over the last few years but not as many as you think and uh, for me it was a case of well I can try and make some money in Formula 1 or I can move to MotoGP and I ended up going down the bike route just because whenever I first turned up into the paddock there was half a dozen English speaking journalists and uh, suddenly over the last few years obviously our group and uh, a few other people have joined us and it's changed quite a bit but the one thing that hasn't changed is it all comes down to the group that you're able to surround yourself with and it's interesting that you know different different groups all sprout up and some people can float between those different groups but everyone ends up sitting together in their own group every week and uh, that's one of the things that you know becomes interesting then to see which of those people will then work with one another and which of them will sort of keep their own little kingdoms. Yeah, you know, it's it's it kind of reminds me more of, of high school in a way than than a family sometimes. But uh, I always come back to the the traveling circus analogy just because it feels like it's uh, this little insular thing that just hops around the world and it's its own little community. Uh, you know, David, you you mentioned you know meeting uh, Dennis Noyes and 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 that friendship that was created there as kind of. Uh, helping start your career, what was the defining moment or or was that the defining moment where you felt like you were a part of of the Grand Prix paddock or what was that what was that turning point where you feel like you you were on the inside instead of on the outside i I mean it'll, it'll sound a bit strange, but I don't think that moment ever really came. I never really felt like I was on the inside, and I still get quite confused when people um uh you know sort of defer to me as a, 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 as a journalist or are interested in what I have to say as a journalist. I still find that quite bizarre, frankly. So I've always felt a little bit on the, uh, uh, on, on the, uh, on the outside, but um, uh, certainly when sort of Dennis took me under his wing, it made me feel like um, I was a bit more of a, a part of at least of the Grand Prix circus. And also then, um, uh really i i didn't have very much contact with the english speaking journalists in um in the paddock i mean dennis always floated between the english speaking journalists and the spanish uh spanish language journalists and he was much more in with the spanish language journalists so for a lot i had a lot more contact with italian journalists and with spanish journalists until uh steve came along really um so yeah it's it's hard to say I don't know, but like you say, you, it, it's sort of it's a factor of time. You grow up, and you it, it, it's a lived experience. So you go through the, this experience, and, and things happen to you, and you don't really realize what kind of an effect it's had until sort of several years later. Steve, do you have a do you have a moment in time where you kind of like that was the turning point for for 
I wasn't going to say your career, but in terms of, you know, being inducted into the family? Uh, well, I remember Valencia 2014 was probably that pivotal moment for me where I thought, like, actually, there's a chance that you could make something from this. And it was because, again, Matt Burt was talking to me on, on during the test. And at this stage, Matt hadn't decided to move to Dorna to the world feed, but he you know, asked me if I'd be interested in doing some web work for MCN the following year. And obviously at that stage, MCN was, you know, a massive publication. It was, you know, a big deal. And uh, for me, just to be asked if I'd be interested in doing something like that suddenly made me think like, yeah, you know, people are taking a bit of notice. And then within a month of that, Matt had moved on to work on the world feed and he had put me forward to replace him at MCN. I'd gone over for an interview and, you know, you do think that like, you know, yeah, this this all has a chance of coming together. I remember I went over to Peterborough and, you know, I was told this isn't an interview at all. It's just a case of come over and uh, meet with us. And then you sat down and there was uh, Michael Guy and Matt on one side of the table and me on the other. And they were asking me a lot of questions. And you're thinking, this seems very much <laughs> like an interview. And, uh, you know, it took a long time for them to actually advertise the job and then to go through their interview process. And then, uh, you know, I was starting to think, you know, as I said earlier, that this wasn't an opportunity that was going to come my way because that's the kind of job that's always, it's a job for someone else. It's never a job that you think you're going to get. Like whenever I was a kid, I used to always buy MCN every week and you know, you'd read what Matt was writing and it was, it, it was pivotal during the course of your week. And I'm sure Neil was the same whenever he'd wait until, you know, probably Thursday or Friday before you were able to get it in Ireland at that stage. And uh, when you opened it, you were reading the previous week's report and it, it was your outlet or your you know your your line into the paddock and it was you know a massive deal so to be offered that job then later on was huge for me and 2015 was as Neil said a really fun year to work in the paddock it was a, a one of the best years that we'd ever seen you know there was just one race after the next obviously Sepang at the end of the year Valencia and it really was a phenomenal year to be able to report on it and I remember you know I'll still look back at different copies of the paper from that year and there's things in it that you're proud of there's things in it you wish you could write again there's things in it that uh, you probably would like to focus a bit more on and uh, you know that that's one of the ways that it that it goes during the course of a year but it was a great year to be able to do that and it was a great year then for us as well we started the the podcast and it was a lot of fun to be able to to work on that together and that was, again, like I said, one of those projects where a group of us come together and we're all able to try and work towards a common goal. And like I remember in 2015, I think I did two podcasts and then MCN kicked off and said, you can't, uh, you can't work on a project like this. So I sort of had to take a back seat until I left them at the end of the year. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. But it was a year where all of us started properly to work together. And that was a lot of fun. No, it's interesting to to hear you to mention that that issue of MCN and and you know not wanting you to be on the podcast and that you know listening to David talk about the you know not being as close to the to the British journalists uh, when he started out. I think there's an interesting point there to talk about the the shift because um, I, I see that as as a as a part of that print mindset thinking about media only in, in very limited terms in the way it's been for you know literally the past hundred years but not realizing how it's how it's changing going forward because 
truthfully, I think that's that's what gave us a lot of our opportunities. That what's that's what gave us the ability to to start this podcast was was how much um, the paddock in in general was kind of stuck in an old way, and we were coming on as as a new wave. And I remember uh, I remember being told that. Only, the only people that were online journalists were the people that got rejected from working uh, from print publications. And it, there was like this failure to understand that there could be people that that had rejected print journalism on their own, saying, I don't want to be a part of that medium. I want to be a part of this new medium that's, that's up and coming because I'm a newer generation of journalist or I'm a new generation of writer or I'm a new generation of like, hey, I'm going to do podcast or video. Um that's very that's very interesting to me. Yeah, or in my case, uh, the, I don't really want to be writing articles of three hundred words because it would take me twice as long to write three hundred words as it takes me to write three thousand words because I'd actually have to sort of um, uh, slow myself down and and cut things away. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you're absolutely right. And there has been uh, for a lot of certainly the impression I got when I first came in is, as I said. Um, we were seen as, you know, sort of stealing headlines from uh, from from the from the print edition, um, which certainly never my uh, you know my objective. My objective was always just to try and write something interesting. But yeah, it was, uh, and I, there were the print publications actively tried to keep. I mean, there was the there was the web group, you know, me and Pete McLaren and um, uh, Neil and Steve when they were there, and the print uh, the the print publications tried to keep uh, their uh, their people away from us be- in case they got infected with the internet or something, um, which was just generally seen as a uh, seen as a bad thing. So it's just it's been the whole the the approach of some print medias has been very very odd indeed. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big things that has changed because I remember in 2015, I was basically told who I should sit with at a racetrack because you shouldn't sit with people that are working for internet sites. You shouldn't you shouldn't collaborate with them. You should really be treating them as a rival that you should be keeping at arm's length. Whereas in actual fact, all of us do very different things. At that stage, Crash was all about being able to write a story about every rider. It was 300 words boshed out and it was get yourself your Rossi story or Marquez story, whatever it was, and have each rider covered. Obviously, over the last few years, Crash really has evolved from that to being about analysis and being able to have you know, much much less stories, but much more detail. And at that stage, Dave, obviously your roundup was one of those go-to articles for everyone, but it was very long. I was sort of in the middle whenever I was working with MCN. You were still, every day I was writing... Uh, a, a roundup like yours, Dave, in the same sort of style, but more just geared towards here's what writer XYZ have done through the course today. And then at the end of the week, it was about being able to review the full weekend because, you know, three or four days after a race, who really wants to read a race report? You want to be able to sort of get the feeling of what was happening over the course of the weekend. And that's the key thing. And it was that sort of shift that took place, you know, only relatively recently, really, you know, it's only in the last few years that that became very important. And that's just because there's been more websites, as Dave said, initially, whenever he came in, there was only a handful. Now you look at it and there's lots of websites covering MotoGP, covering just motorbike racing. And that's what sort of forced everyone to really try and evolve into what they have to do. I just want to circle back for a second because I was thinking about this idea of, of the GP paddock being... Uh, a family, 
How do you guys balance being in that family and still being objective journalists? How do you balance that idea of like, hey, I've I've got a story. It's going to be really tough on Ryder X, but you know, I have lunch with with them, you know, every round. How do you how do you balance those two relationships? Because I think that's one of the trickier things in our job to to do. Well, uh, for me, it's easy because I think everyone hates me, so that's uh, it's, it's quite simple. Yeah, um, no, we actually do all we do what we do all hate you, David. That's yeah, correct. exactly. Yes. No, but that, that, that's the point. I mean, like I said, for me, it's been simple. Uh, you are you can't be friends with riders because. Um, uh, and you can't be friends with team managers because you're there as a you know you have a professional relationship with them. You can like them, um, but you are still on sort of slightly opposite sides of the uh, of the divide, as it were. Um, but that's that's different for everyone, I think, because I mean it's certainly different for Steve also because he has a different role. He's a, he's a commentator. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I found is that as long as everyone knows that you're objective and that you're not out to try and stir something, they give you that bit of respect. Like I've, you know, I've got a few mates that are writers and you're actually much more critical on them than you would be on most other people. Like for mm. me at least, I don't know if that's the case for everyone, but definitely in in my experience, you don't want there to be any question of showing favoritism to someone that you know that you're mates with so it does end up being where you're actually probably more critical on them than you would be on other people which is you know probably a little bit counterintuitive to how you'd think you'd approach things but it ends up always being that you know those the goal is always that everyone knows that you're very objective about what you're doing that you don't show that favoritism and I think whenever any of us are sitting down to write a story or when me and Neil are commentating, you are able to separate those relationships from what you see out on track. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's, about, it's about trust, I think. It's, it's completely, as you say, it's completely about trust. The, uh, these people have to, the, the riders, team managers, they, they have to trust you um, that you will try to represent their side of things as fairly as possible, um, even if you're uh, criticizing them. Steve, I'll offer you uh, another explanation for that maybe because I think when you have a, a personal relationship or um, or something you like, <clears throat> you're more critical of it because you hold it to a higher standard. You, you're more invested in in that person or that team or that that company or whatever it is, and that can be that can be a tough challenge to to try and balance that out. I'm, I've always been of the opinion like you know. Tr- Traditional journalism is the idea of like you're supposed to have no bias. Uh, you know, I can tell you, you know, studying psychology, um, you know, the icon- the concept of having no bias is is a misnomer. When you try and remove bias, you actually create bias. And you know, my perspective has always been to to wear my bias on my sleeve or wear my perspective on my sleeve, and to be more opinion driven than try and be this this mythical idea of fair and balanced or whatever. You know, journalistic standard that we that we lie to ourselves about, and I think David, you you also lead with analysis as well, rather than just being, you know, pure you know news, and and I think that's one of the the defining things of kind of this new generation of journalists is that we have a different uh, relationship with our readers and 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 truthfully our subjects as well. Well, maybe the relationship with our subjects is the same, but our relationship with the readers is definitely different than than traditional media. 
Yeah, but that's because we can actually interact with them. And uh, like for me, I mean, I use Twitter a lot and I like Twitter because it allows you to actually, to actually interact with people. Um, same with the comment, a comment se section on the website. I mean, as long as you can police it well enough, um, it's inspiring, it's interesting, and it gives you sort of feedback, which, um, which can be really, really, uh, we, yeah, that can be really, really interesting. Yeah, and I think that the one thing is obviously for David and for Jensen, it's quite different compared to for me and Neil because a big thing for your sites is always about the analysis. It's looking at you know an overall viewpoint, whereas for me and Neil, we've had to do a lot of work where you're based for British publications or you know in Neil's case as well, working for some Australian and American publications, and you have to really detail an awful lot about writers from those countries. So you spend an awful lot of time with those writers and there is an internal bias that comes from that because you also know and and Neil I'd say that uh, Danny Kent in 2015 is probably the best example for both of us you know that that's a massive story for your audience this is the chance for Britain to finally have another world champion this is the chance for history to be made and that gives you a great opportunity and that's where the whole way through that season as it starts to build and the momentum starts to go with Danny you're story basically becomes can he get across the line and whenever he did win that world championship in Valencia it's a massive story for us you're happy for Danny because as you said you've spent every day through the season going down to talk to him you've built that relationship and your payoff is the fact that he trusts you enough to be able to give you you know good quotes good access to be able to write like you wrote a piece for motocourse at the end of that 2015 season where you were able to sit down talk to him talk to his crew chief talk to the people that he had worked with all the way through his career and really get something that was interesting from it and that comes from working for a british website where a big story is his championship um yeah i guess just to add to what uh, both what steve and david were saying there i mean i think it just um it, it does take a bit of time um because you come into the paddock, obviously, as a new face, and uh, you see that everyone has built up relationships, and and basically you're going up against some people um, that have been in the paddock for the best part of 30 years or, or 35 years, <clears throat> who literally know everyone in every single garage, um, and have been with some riders where um, they've, they've essentially interviewed them after their first win in 125s or in the Moto3 class. And basically, you just... You, you can't really compete against that because uh, you know the longer you've been there, and, and if you've proven yourself to be rather trustworthy and not uh, seeking uh, sensation at every available corner, I think um, yeah, you do you do get to build up that trust. So I found um, you know first couple of years were great, but it's that sort of regularity of being there um, when you start to eventually feel that you have got relationships in the paddock and people do trust you, and there are people that you can go to if you have to find something out um, or you, you've heard a rumor about something um, it, it's that sort of uh, it's that sort of a time being there experience and knowing getting to know different faces that that allows you to to essentially seek out information um, and to be able to decide okay that person told me some nonsense before so I don't really think I'm going to trust what he says whereas that person has usually been quite on the mark with what they've said and, and you know that obviously takes a couple of years to, to gain that to gain that understanding yeah I mean it's definitely true that once you've been there I mean you you do notice that sort of having been there for a long time is that you see riders come in 
and then they they sort of you know follow their career and because you talked to them when they were in sort of motor three or one two fives or whatever uh, and then spoke to them in motor two that you start to build um uh, a, more of a relationship w- w- with them than certainly when i first started and all you're doing is going to motor gp debriefs they you know th- these people have no idea who you are um whereas uh just as a random example brad bender i've known brad bender for a long time um because i saw him you know i used to do uh, i would do speaking events at um uh, at uh, pole position travel nights and they sponsored brad bender and so brad bender would turn up so you'd be you'd, you'd have like five you know five minutes just chatting to him um and now he's in moto gp and so he there's more of an understanding sort of thing um uh, that definitely makes a difference and just sort of like knowing as you say neil knowing who you can trust knowing someone who either palmed you off or told you a lot of nonsense or whatever that's that, that's what really makes the difference who are your um who would be your picks for for best interviews in the paddock or are there certain people that are uh your go-to when you need a technical ex- explanation or uh, an on-track explanation or 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 something of that nature yeah for for me jensen i'd say that over the last few years michael laverty's probably been one of the most useful people to talk to because Michael's obviously got a lot of experience from racing at pretty much every level. He's also got a very technical mind, so he's able to talk in a lot of detail about what he sees out on track, and then he's able to relay that back to what he's been able to do in terms of getting different bikes to work. Yeah, I think it's, for me anyway, like uh, from what I've I've seen over the last four or five years, it's it's a mix really. I mean, there's uh, there's some ex-riders that are fantastic. I mean, Michael Laverty, is, as Steve mentions, is uh, is always really worth listening to Neil Hodgson as well is, is always good value um, and then it's you get to know some of the riders that are more adept at explaining the more technical things to you uh, in a really good way and then there's obviously riders that you just know you're going to get a good quote from um, like I guess you would think of uh, someone like Andrea Duizioso or Bradley Smith as fantastic at being able to explain very complex things in a in kind of layman's terms. If you're looking for an explosive quote that's going to grab a headline, I mean, Carl Crutchlow usually delivers on that front. Um, but you also get to know certain team managers and and um, and chief mechanics that uh, that have a great way of communicating. Um, if any are to stand out to me, I think um, Peter Baum, David's colleague on Dutch Eurosport now, um, when he was a crew chief, he was always really great at basically being not just open, but uh, explaining um, incredibly complex things. And he also explained the human side of things very well as well. Um, so, yeah, um, I would, for, in my case, you know, it, it's a real mix um, because you, you do have some riders where you think, well, okay, I might not go to that debrief because sometimes it's not always the most interesting or, or sometimes it might just be not true what, what they're telling you. So, um, yeah, it's it's a mix. You, you, through time, you get to you get to be able to, to sift through that and uh, know, what, know what works for you and works for the needs of your publication or, or your commentary, your job, basically. Yeah, Neil, it's interesting that you mentioned Peter Baum as well because obviously for us in 2015, he was a real key figure to be able to understand a lot about what was happening with Danny Kent. And you talk about the mental approach. A lot of the really good insight that we got about Danny that year came from someone like Peter. And obviously for you now, David, to be able to work with him, you're really able to delve into a lot of detail about different elements of racing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's, uh, I always look forward to going to Le Mans uh, nowadays, uh, even though I used to absolutely hate it. But that's mainly just because I get to sit in in a car for, uh, for eight hours with Peter Bomb. And we always end up just talking about bikes for eight hours and about the very sort of um, uh, every single aspect. I mean, he is a genuinely fascinating man in that he is, like all great crew chiefs, um, you need a certain amount of arrogance to think that you can do something well, but you also have to be um, have the humility to 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 want to learn and to be and to observe and to you know look at data. And data in this sense means not just uh, the data being recorded by all the sensors on the bikes. It's also looking at the rider, listening to the rider, trying to see what the rider is. Um, uh, not just what the rider is saying, but also what he's trying to say and what you might be might be missing otherwise. So, like that's that's always really, really. It's always interesting to talk to him. Uh, like Neil said, um, Andrea Dovizioso is absolutely fantastic um, um, at explaining things. Bradley Smith, similar, really, really good at explaining the, the the technical details. To me, the disadvantage, I think, is that there are so many non-English or so many people who don't have English as a first language. And so they can struggle a little bit more to, uh, to explain things. So sometimes you'll hear... Uh, a rider will have said something in their own language, which was, or, you know, you'll go to a debrief and it's usually English first and the English debrief will not be particularly exciting. And then uh, it'll all kick off in their own language because they have uh, much more confidence in their ability to um, convey what they want uh, sort of, you know, much more, uh, much more so, uh, subtly. Um, but there are riders who will always give you I mean Valentino Rossi will always give you a quote he will always leave you a one-liner um, whether he's had a good day or a bad day or whatever um, that's also part of his uh, brilliance in that he can uh, you know he'll give you the headline you know he will give you the headline for your story because there will be one quote um, uh, that you can just like stick straight up as a as a headline and and um no matter what the rest of the things he might have said it might be a good deal less interesting but at least you've got something i think that's an interesting thing to point out david and i you know i know coming up through this we've had a lot of discussions on the american side on on how to groom young writers to be able to talk to the media to be you know good ambassadors for their sponsors and and a lot of it comes down to just trying to uh, round off their rougher edges, which I think just makes for very bland writers sometimes. But the ones that are really media savvy, the ones that I think actually do it correctly, like, like your Valentino Rossi's, they understand the idea that you're there for a quote, you're there for a story, you're there to explain something in a way that will engage your audience. And they feed that that uh, desire or that need effectively because they're thinking about it in those terms rather than just how do I appease you know all the different factors my team my sponsorships my my friends and uh, it's interesting to see that that who plays the game at let's say like a B level which I would say is just kind of boring and then who's playing it at really a, at an A level like like I would say Rossi does to a T. Yeah, but I, I think there are there are riders. I mean, like none of the riders enjoy talking to journalists. They hate it. Every single one of them. 
Um, it is a an annoyance for them most of the time. Uh, you know, it, it breaks up their routine. They want to be get on with. It doesn't help them win a motorcycle race, and the only thing they're really interested in is something which will help them win. Um, however, the smart ones understand that um, uh, the the better they do their job uh, in the debriefs, the better they are at um, explaining things quickly and briefly uh, and clearly. The fewer questions they'll get asked, and and the less painful. A, an experience is for everyone and so they won't be asked to do it again um they want to sort of you know put it put it behind them whereas there are others who just sort of stand there and make it a, a, the most painful experience imaginable uh for 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 all involved uh and that really that really doesn't help it doesn't help anyone because um it doesn't help the sponsor it doesn't help the team it doesn't help them um they they've sort of stood there like a grumpy teenager for uh, for five minutes while we've tried to squeeze um, uh, it's any kind of information out. Yeah. Casey Stoner comes to mind as you, as you tell that story, David. Well, honestly, Casey Stoner was fantastic. Casey Stoner was someone, if you could ask him a technical question, something he could explain, he'd be absolutely superb at it. He'd be really, really good. So he was really precise. And uh, th- th- I mean, the, the, the trick to Casey Stoner was to kick him off, was to um, get him... Uh, especially if, if he was annoyed at something or other, something which had happened, then what you do is you just you know throw him a uh, throw him a story about um, so uh, you know our electronics ruining racing, and then he'd be free to go off on a rant which didn't involve slagging off the manufacturer he was riding for. So that was uh, you'd always get sort of really really quality material out of him uh, on that. Yeah, and one of my sort of great regrets is not uh, ever having a chance to to interview Casey or or even to be within a, a kind of a debrief circle whenever Casey was competing or even testing whenever he was doing those tests at uh, Sepang uh, for Ducati after he uh, announced his racing retirement because from what, you know, Steve, David, what you guys have told me, even um, going back to some of the journalists that have been around a little longer than you, like Matt Burt or Matt Oxley, um, I mean, Casey did sound like a, well, just a, a real an experience, essentially, um, and one that uh, never gives you anything other than his uh, absolutely forthright opinion, um, even if that involved dressing certain people down in, in many instances as well. So, I think that would have been uh, that would have been great value. Oh, it was always interesting. Uh, it was more difficult. For example, Danny Barroso was more difficult in the sense that um, you never knew what you were going to get, because sometimes you'd get really good quotes and it'd be really interesting. And other times he would answer, he would literally answer questions with, by lifting a single eyebrow. And uh, that would, you know, that, that would be a lot. And then you'd sort of have to say, Danny, um, could you speak into the microphone? So I've got it on the, uh, on my recorder, please. Um, but other times it'd be fantastic. And it would just happen. It would just sort of like depend on, you know, how you managed to catch him or whatever, or if he, he, he if he felt like answering the question. So it was, uh, it's really, really difficult. Yeah, usually if things had gone really badly for Pedroza, that's when he was uh, he, at his best, at his most listenable, when he had uh, a beef, something to get off his chest. Uh, th- that's the same for all of the riders. That was the same with Casey as well. I mean, you know, like as long as it, when he was angry, he was, he was absolutely he was absolutely great. My favourite story or my, my favourite memory of um, uh, Stoner was, uh, I, I think, Aragon in 2010, um, when it was clear that uh, Casey was off to Honda and um, 
uh, Rossi was off to Ducati and we were basically running in between the two garages saying, oh, Casey's just said this. And then uh, 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 Rossi, because I think Rossi was saying something about... Um, uh, this Aragon. That was the first race that um, uh, that the Stoner actually actually won the uh, won that year, and um, uh, Rossi was having a bit of a go. So you know he's just not he's just not riding it hard enough, and um, so he said that to us. I think on the Thursday or something. So we ran off into the uh, into the uh, uh, into the Ducati garage and. Uh, asked Catty, uh, asked Stoner about it, and he said, "Oh well, you'll soon find out about riding uh, about you know riding a riding a bike hard." And so we all ran back off, had to wait till the next day for the next debrief, and then said, "Oh, did you hear what Casey said?" So it was it was incredibly childish, um, uh, but it kept us amused through the weekend. You know, guys, it, it's interesting. Uh, you know, one of the things we were trying to do this year was to make the Paddock Pass podcast more of a, a weekly show instead of just uh, every race weekend. Um, obviously, the uh, <laughs> the coronavirus outbreak has, has kind of thrown a wrench in that plan because there's hasn't been really any racing for us to talk about. And, uh, you know, there's a very real worry that we won't really see any racing this year, uh, depending on how long it takes for, for life to resume back to normal. Um but I think one of the things we can take away is that there there are interesting stories always in racing. You know, today obviously we're kind of taking a break and we're kind of talking about stuff that's behind the scenes and we're we're the focal point rather than you know uh, the GP paddock or the World Superbike paddock or or Suzuka or one of those other races. Obviously, we don't have a TT show this year. Um, but I think you know the best description I've ever heard about motorcycle racing. I think it came from you, David. Was this is this is soap opera for for men, basically. I, you know, we're we're expanding the sport to to be more inclusive for women, but this really has been a, a male dominated, um, you know, arena, and it, and it is kind of like this this drama that that has been put together for for male consumption, which is. Which is always an intriguing idea to me. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's not my quote. It's actually the uh, the, the quote of um, a famous English darts and snooker promoter who took two of the most tedious sports imaginable and turned them into huge, uh, you know, huge financial successes because uh, he realised um, Barry Hearn, I think, is the is the fellow's name. Um, he understood that you know this is sport is unscripted drama you you don't know how it's going to end and the personalities behind it that's that's what is that's what keeps people sort of uh, coming back i think all right boys well i think that's uh, it for today thank you for for joining me on uh, on this show and and kind of giving our listeners uh, an insight on who we are and what we're what we're doing here um, hopefully we'll be back to racing soon, but, uh, maybe that's not going to be the case, but we'll, we'll certainly wait and see it. it it's, you know, a little bit of out, out of our control. It's a little bit out of, you know, motorcycle racing's control and society's control. So, um, but we will be keep, uh, bringing shows each week and looking for, you know, interesting stories to tell our listeners and, and, to you know, have some analysis amongst ourselves. So, uh, Things to look forward to, nonetheless. Yeah, we've got plenty still planned for the next while with the show, whether it's looking back at different races, different seasons, and different uh, experiences that we had within the paddock during those seasons. And uh, definitely quite a quite a lot of content still 
in the planner for the shows over the next week while. I think this was a, a good show to be able just to do, to be able to give people a bit of a background on how all of us kind of fell into the industry. And uh, from next week onwards, then it's back to back to a much more regular kind of show. Yeah, yeah. So keep a lookout for us on, on the social media, on, on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to help support the show through these uh, interesting economic times, I, I will say as, as more of the business end of the Paddock Pass podcast, we would greatly appreciate you throwing a dollar or two our way via Patreon. We're going to continue to put out uh, special content for our Patreon listeners um, that adds a little bit more of an added dimension or a little bit more flavor to some of the stories that we're covering uh, generally on the show itself. So there's some really, really good things out there that we've been uh, putting up for our Patreon listeners. So give that a look. And if you've got a little spare cash in your wallet, uh, we, we would gladly take that from you. Um, but yeah, until then, we'll see you uh, next week. Keep looking for us every Thursday morning. Uh, I believe we are shooting for, I think it's 8 a.m. London time, 9 a.m. European time, uh, midnight Pacific Coast time here in the U.S. Um, so yeah. We'll uh, we'll keep coming to you each week and help you get through this uh, these lockdowns and these interesting uh, situations that we're all facing because uh, you know the the MotoGP paddock might be a family, but uh, the Paddock Pass podcast is certainly a family as well. And we think of you, our listeners, as a part of our family too. So uh, until then, uh, guys, good talking to you, and we'll see you out there. No, I still can't hear you, Neil. Can you hear me? Can you hear him, Jay? I can't I can hear him either. I think yeah. I think he's, he's I think he's mute, accidentally muted his audio. No, I haven't. Um, yeah, well, is, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I haven't. It's back. It's it's back now. <laughs> I think he's trying to say that he hasn't. <laughs> he has. <laughs> I haven't. I don't think your I don't think your mic's plugged in or something. He looks passionate about it though. Now he looks confused. Um, so you'll just have to deal with the background of this call on my recording from now if that's okay well I, I, it's all right for me to say it's brian <laughs> sounds like a brian problem <laughs> sorry brian you're gonna have to hack that one together